Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Uh, have you ever seen a movie that actually begins with the ending? Have you ever seen a movie where, where they don't start with the beginning of the story, but it's kind of interesting. They actually begin with how the movie is going to end. It's, 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 it's kind of weird. It's kind of interesting. You might think it would actually give up the whole purpose of watching this, this story unfold, if you already know how it's going to end. But I think if it's done really well, and there are some films like this, I think it can actually make the whole story that much more interesting. We don't, we don't know all the twists and turns that are going to happen, although we know where it's all eventually leading. It kind of makes us lean in a little bit more and see how this thing is going to unfold. There's some really well-known movies um, and TV shows and stuff that actually begin like this. Some of them are, are some of my favorites. One is The Prestige. Another is Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, Memento, Fight Club, and, and maybe the best cinematic work of art ever, The Hangover. Um, <laughs> you know, some great films and stories begin with the end. Now, if the transfiguration, this story that we just read from the Gospel of Luke, if it was a movie, I think that it too would actually begin by showing us the end. Because if you notice, the first verse that we just read about a week before, about eight days they say, Jesus was telling his disciples how it's all gonna end. He was telling them that the end is coming, that it will involve suffering and death and even resurrection. So when we enter this transfiguration story, we enter knowing where all of it's heading. We don't exactly know how it's gonna get there, at least if you're one of the original uh, people hearing this text in the, in the ancient times. There will be some twists and turns along the way, um, but we know that when we interpret this moment, this transfiguration, I think we have to see it in light of what's coming, in light of the end. So before we actually jump straight into our passage, I want us to see a little bit of the context around where and when this was happening. Over the last several weeks, we've been preaching and teaching through the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at the life of Jesus from the, the, the time of Advent when we looked at Jesus's birth, even the stories that led up to his birth and Christmas. And then we looked at Jesus being baptized and then fasting for 40 days in the wilderness before beginning his public ministry. And then lately, we've been really focusing in on these two sort of themes that are going on in the life of Jesus, where he is teaching radically about the kingdom of God, proclaiming good news. And he's revealing the, the spiritual realm. He's revealing what's really going on um, underneath just what we see and hear with our eyes, right? We've been seeing Jesus work miracles like feeding the 5,000, healing the sick and the oppressed, and teaching us about the kingdom. So as you might expect, people were starting to notice what was going on in their world around them. They were starting to see this, this guy, Jesus, do some pretty interesting things. And so they were starting to come up with ideas about who he may have been. Some thought he may have been an old prophet, Elijah, sort of reincarnated. Some thought others things, things about who he may have been. Um, just a few verses before our text, Jesus was speaking with his disciples and he, he asked them, hey, who do people say that I am? Like, who do these, these people around us think that I might be? 
um, and they, they give a few answers for who, who the people thought he was. He then even specifically asks the disciples, Peter specifically, who do you say that I am, right? Making it personal, do you know who I really am? And Peter courageously confesses, you are God's Messiah. Immediately after this, uh, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples something pretty unexpected. He says, he reveals the end that is coming, right? He says that he must suffer, be rejected by many, and ultimately be killed to be raised to life on the third day. This is a big deal in the Gospels because this is the first time that Jesus tells his followers where this is all heading. This is the first time that he reveals how the story is going to end. But Jesus goes even further, not only telling them how the story is going to end, he actually tells his followers that if they really want to be his disciples, they have to follow him all the way there. They have to deny themselves. They have to take up their cross right along with him um, and follow him even to the point of the end. Now, the end is coming. And Our text today marks the beginning of the end. So that brings us to our passage. I want to kind of jump in and uh, look at this passage verse by verse. I think um, it's kind of, it can be sort of a confusing story, like to understand what's really going on in this moment. So I want to peel back some of the layers of what was happening here. And I think we'll be able to see some more richness and depth to what was really going on. And for the sake of our time today, I mean, Literally, we could do a whole sermon series on these these verses. There's a lot um, happening. So for our time today, I want to focus on two things. I want to focus on seeing and listening. Seeing Jesus and listening to Jesus. Because in the transfiguration, the disciples see Jesus for who he really is. And they're invited to listen to what he's really saying. So let's just jump in and kind of go verse by verse, see what was happening in this text for for Jesus and for the disciples. And then in a little bit, we'll talk about what that might mean for us. So verse 28, um, this is part one of our, our talk today. We're gonna be seeing Jesus. Verse 28, about eight days after Jesus said this, so about a week after he said that suffering is coming, the end is coming, take up your cross and follow me. About a week later, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Just side note, I love that Luke points out why they went up the mountain. This story is in, um, definitely it's in all three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then some scholars say that John alluded to this moment. I think he did. Um, and, but the only one who points out why they went up the mountain is Luke. And Luke says they went up the mountain to pray. Prayer was such a significant part in the life of Jesus, and so many meaningful moments in his life were marked by prayer. Again, that could be a whole sermon right there, but I, I don't have time to go too far into that. Verse 29, as Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. So here's where things get interesting in the story, right? Jesus is praying, and he, he's transfigured. This is where we get the word transfiguration, which isn't a very common word in our language. I don't, I don't use it very often, at least. So I, I thought I'd do a little digging um, by Googling the dictionary and seeing what, <laughs> what, what exactly, the, I mean, you can kind of tell what it means just by hearing it, but I, I liked these uh, dictionary definitions. Merriam-Webster 
defines transfiguration as a new exalted or spiritual appearance. And then Oxford, I like this too, says it's a transformation into something more beautiful or elevated. I think these definitions help us to see what's happening here. There's both a spiritual reality happening and a physical reality happening. In this moment of prayer, Jesus is transformed, transfigured into something exalted, more spiritually exalted, and also more beautiful and radiant than his normal everyday appearance. This could be like a compliment that you might give uh, your, your wife or your husband or your partner. You just look so beautiful today. You look transfigured. Maybe don't say that because then they'll think on the other days they don't look as, as good. Um, but it could, it could be an interesting way to compliment someone because, yeah, he's radiant. He's just shining so brightly, even as bright as a flash of lightning, which would be blinding, blindingly bright. But I think simply put, what's happening here kind of in the spiritual sense is the glory of the Lord is shining just unbelievably bright before the disciples. We see a foreshadow, a glimpse into what brightness we will see in the final coming when Jesus shines in the cloud of the glory of God. So while Jesus is is shining brightly, is transfigured, Two men appear, Moses and Elijah. This is verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor to talk with Jesus. So again, things are kind of continuing to get a little bit more interesting. Moses and Elijah show up. Now, why Moses and Elijah? These people would have been been dead at that time. They were not living in, they were not just like, friends or disciples of Jesus who could meet them up on the mountaintop. They were, they show up in this moment And I think it's interesting if we look at who these these folks are to kind of understand what's going on. So Moses, as many of you know, was the great lawgiver and liberator for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He led God's people through the Exodus when the Israelites were freed by God from slavery in the land of Egypt. Elijah, on the other hand, um, was a prophet, and he sort of represents all of the Old Testament prophets in this moment. So here we see Jesus speaking with sort of representatives of the law and the prophets, the entirety of the Old Testament, well, not the entirety, but a good chunk of the Old Testament story. So who he's speaking to, Moses and Elijah, is interesting. But then what they speak about is, I think, even more interesting. Verse 31 says, they spoke about his departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure. Um, The Greek word here that's translated departure is the same word that we use for the exodus, the exodus. Jesus is speaking to the leader of the Israelites' exodus about his upcoming exodus. Jesus, his upcoming death and resurrection will be an exodus, not unlike the original exodus when God delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. So again, this discussion just shows us what was on Jesus's mind in these days. He knew what was coming, that his departure, his exodus, his death and resurrection were at the forefront of his mind. So Jesus is about to begin a new exodus, an exodus in which he will deliver his people from the bondage of slavery, slavery to sin and death. 
and bring fulfillment through that to the work of both Moses and Elijah. This is a powerful moment, I think, really for Jesus to be reminded and confirmed of who he is as the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. So, so this powerful moment for Jesus is happening. What's, what's going on with Peter, James, and John? Where are the disciples? Well, this was funny, and as Jason was reading it, I, I almost laughed, but here's verse 32. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Really, guys? Like, they almost slept through this transfiguration moment, this bright lightning. I mean, I know they went to the mountain to pray, but like, come on, guys. You don't have to fall asleep. Like, there's so many stories about the disciples being with Jesus and, like, falling asleep during prayer. I guess, I don't know. It, it happens to the best of us. But, um, but seriously, the disciples almost miss this, this powerful moment. They almost sleep through the whole thing. But the brightness of Christ, I think, at least keeps them a little bit awake, right? They were sleepy, but they weren't fully asleep. And, and the beauty is they get to witness the miracle that is happening right before their own eyes. Peter, who just a week ago confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, gets to see him in bright glory, undeniably bright glory. And so what's happening here is a miraculous revelation of Jesus' true identity. It's, it's showing Jesus, who the disciples would have known as one of them, Mary and Joseph's son, a, a carpenter, a man who ate and drank like them, a man who worked and, and rested, slept like them, a man who laughed and cried like them. They get to see him as, as the man they know who's not only human but also in some mysterious way divine. The beauty of the transfiguration is seeing that Jesus the Messiah, the one they know as fully human, is at the same time fully God. The one who is about to endure great suffering, rejection, pain, crucifixion even, is God himself. Now, uh, I like to read some of our uh, ancient church leaders, church fathers, and mothers. Um, and there's a man named Ephraim the Syrian who was a, a theologian or um, like a church leader, church father in the early 300s AD. So this is not too long after um, Jesus' death and resurrection. He has a lot of um, interesting writings on the scriptures and on theology. And I found one of his like brief pieces on the transfiguration and it was just full of beauty and depth, and it was hard to pick just one quote, but I thought this one was really powerful. Here's uh, Ephraim the Syrian. He says, Jesus led them, the disciples, up the mountain and showed them his kingship before his passion, his power before his death, his glory before his disgrace, his honor before his dishonor, so that when he was arrested and crucified, they might know that he was not crucified through weakness, but willingly by his good pleasure for the salvation of the world. That's what it means to see the glory of the Lord. It means seeing that beauty, that goodness that is to come in the new heavens and new earth. It means seeing Jesus for who he really is, not just who they want him or who they think he is. It means seeing that paradox of power that, we, that will be displayed in what we can only call weakness. That's what it means for them to see the glory of the Lord. 
So while they're witnessing this, this power, honor, glory, this kingship, Peter gets an interesting idea. And here's where we move into part two, listening. Verse 33, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. So Peter wants to set up camp and stay the night. He doesn't want this glorious moment to end. Why not prolong the experience? Why not put up a tent? And we don't know everything that was going on in Peter's mind in this moment, but I think our text, Luke, made it, made it pretty clear that his suggestion isn't going over very well. He doesn't really know what he's saying. You see, Peter wants to stay in this glorious moment, but he doesn't realize that what he's asking for is a shortcut. He doesn't realize that he's asking to avoid the suffering and pain that Jesus has just told him was a necessary step toward resurrection. If he would have been awake, he may have even heard Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus about his upcoming exodus. I think Peter here wants the mountaintop without the valley. He wants glory without suffering. He wants resurrection without death. He doesn't see that this is not yet the time. This is only the beginning of the end. But can we really blame him? I mean, I think you and I would do a, a, a very, very similar thing, and I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, but Peter, just to return to our text, he doesn't even get to finish his, his argument or his line of thinking. He gets interrupted as he's trying to pitch this idea to Jesus and Moses and Elijah. Verses 34 and 35 say, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So just in case Peter and the other disciples need any further persuasion to see that this Jesus is, is not only human but divine, they get covered in a cloud which also known as the presence of God in, in the scriptures. And they hear an audible voice called Jesus, the chosen son of God. Again, this is all about seeing Jesus for who he really is. Now, as we look to Jesus, this, this would have been a familiar thing to him. He knows the voice of the father not long ago at his baptism. He saw the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and he heard the voice of the father speak very similar words over him. This is my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased. But the difference this time between what we heard the father speak at the baptism and what we hear the father speak now is that Jesus is not only speaking these words to Jesus, but he's actually speaking these words directly to the disciples. The father desperately wants the disciples to know who Jesus really is. So he audibly speaks to them. This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him, right? Listen to him. He's saying that to the disciples. This is my son whom I have chosen. Just making it abundantly clear who Jesus really is. Listen to him. Listen to him. Don't just hear what he says, but really listen. Seeing who Jesus is leads to listening to what he says. When we see Jesus for who he really is, the chosen, beloved Messiah of God, how, how could they not listen to him? How could they not follow him wherever he wants to lead them, even as they know 
You see, seeing to Jesus for who he truly is should lead to listening to what he's really saying, not just hearing his words, not just claiming, yeah, Jesus, I, I heard, I know you're the Messiah, but really listening to what he's saying about his upcoming death and resurrection. I'll say more on that uh, in a minute. But just to close out our passage, let's close with verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. So just to summarize this story, right, where Jesus is up on the mountaintops praying with his disciples. He's transfigured into this bright and radiant. Uh, He's speaking with Moses and Elijah about his upcoming death and resurrection. And then Peter wants to pitch a tent and prolong the experience, right? And then the father shows up calling Jesus the chosen, beloved son of God. Listen to him. Wonderful moment, and we could just leave it at at that, at the face value of this amazing story for what a great moment for Jesus, for the disciples, heck, even for Moses and Elijah, they got to have this awesome experience. But how do we, how do we, you know, what might this mean for us? How do we engage this story now in 2022? Um, Well, I think that we too, our world, Our church, us, even as individuals, need to see Jesus for who he really is. And we need to listen to what he's actually saying. I mean, what if we asked ourselves the same question that Jesus asked his disciples? Who do people say that I am? Right? That's where this whole thing started. Who do people say that I am? If we looked to the people around us in our lives, the people who are our friends, the people in our city, the people in our schools, in our workplaces, how how might they answer that? Who do they say that Jesus is? I mean, some, they may not care very much. They might be kind of ambivalent toward Jesus. They might just think, well, he was a smart, kind of wise person. He had some good ideas about loving your neighbor and all that. Some might say that he was a little overly concerned with this whole sin and judgment and hell thing. Some may not care very much. Others may have really strong opinions about who Jesus is and was. And these opinions really affect the way they live in the world, right? There are those who see Jesus as a violent warrior for their political agenda. Those who would even go so far as carrying crosses and waving Jesus flags to attack the United States Capitol. That's because of who they think Jesus is, right? There are those on the other side who might see Jesus as merely an ethical guide who they constantly just takes their side to their approach to solving the world's issues, even if it means just taking him out of context for for their own gain. You see, we all have a picture of who Jesus really is. The philosopher Voltaire put it quite well. If God has made us in his image, we have returned the favor, right? We all make Jesus, maybe not directly or, or uh, intentionally in our own image, but many of us, many of us make Jesus into our own image rather than seeing him for who he really is. And that's why Jesus not only asked the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who, do, who, do, who does the culture, who does the world around you say that I am? They also asked He asked them directly, who do you say that I am? And I think we have to wrestle with that question as well. We have to spend some time really thinking and praying through, who do I say that Jesus is, right? How would you respond? Who is Jesus to you? 
Is he a guy with some great ideas about loving your neighbor? Is he this holy, divine man who, who wasn't even really a human? Is he just a person who died so that you can get into heaven? I mean, who is Jesus? Uh, A.W. Tozer, I think, was on to something in the knowledge of the holy when he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I think that's powerful. I mean, it's also important what God says about us, that we are his beloved children. But in terms of, of the way we live and the way we engage with the world, what comes into our minds when we think about God is one of the most important things about us. Now, what if we were able to see Jesus for who he truly is? What if we could see this this man who was at the same time fully God and fully human, this man who came to bring the kingdom of God to earth, this man who suffered at the hands of sinners in order to redeem fallen humanity, this man who shows us that the way to live a resurrected life must start with death to self. Now, I I firmly believe that Jesus is the greatest, the smartest, the most powerful, the most influential person who has ever lived. And by following him, I believe we can discover what it means to have abundant and eternal life even now. Jesus, in in other languages, is the master teacher, right? And as Dallas Willard says in The Divine Conspiracy, the really good news for humanity is that Jesus is now taking students in the master class of life. Jesus is taking students in the master class of life. He knows the way to live. He knows the way toward beauty and goodness and truth, and he's willing to take us and show us how to live it as well. That is someone who I want to follow. I want to follow the master teacher in the master class of life. But until we see Jesus for who he really is, our King, our Lord, our Messiah, the Alpha and the Omega, and yes, even our friend. Until until we see him for who he is, we won't fully be able to follow him, especially when things get difficult, right? When the inevitable pain of life sets in, it's, it's really hard to follow in those moments. But I think if we really can can have a deep grasp of who Jesus really is, I think we will want to follow him wherever he goes because if he's leading toward resurrection, I want to go there even if that means that suffering and death must come first. But the problem, I think, for, for so many of us, myself included, is we're like Peter. We want these shortcuts to glory. We want the mountaintop, but we don't want the valley. I mean, I can think of so many moments in my own life um, where I was having either a literal like mountaintop moment or like a spiritual mountaintop. I mean, I love going to like national parks or like just beautiful places where I'm just having this awesome like experience with nature and and with God. And uh, my wife, Shannon, I always joke to her like, can we just set up a tent here? Like, can we just, or for me, I'd rather be like, can somebody build an Airbnb here uh, or a glamping situation? I mean, I like camping, but, um, but, but yeah, like I just don't want the moment to end. I just want to stay right in the middle of all the Joshua trees and the cacti and, and all the desert beauty of Joshua Tree National Park or the geothermal pools of, of Yellowstone. Like I just don't want the moment to end. And I feel that way with God sometimes. I just want 
that intimacy, that, that depth that I feel in some moments of prayer or in some moments of worship or whatever it may be? What is your, what is your mountaintop moment that you just don't want to end? It could be that feeling you have on Saturday, after a new, uh, Saturday afternoon after a long week of work. You finally get to take a break and do whatever it is you really want to do, right? Read a good book or drink a good cup of coffee or just be with um, be, be able to take a break, right? Or it could be that family vacation that you take every single year that is just so meaningful, but it always comes to an end way too quickly. Or maybe on a more serious note, it could be that feeling of intimacy that you feel in some moments of prayer and worship, but, but eventually it just fades away and, and you begin to notice a lack or you begin to notice a numbness to God's presence. What is that mountaintop moment that you just don't want to end? Because I think it's good, and, and, and it's, it makes sense. It's desirable for us to have these mountaintop moments. They, they're not bad. We need them. We need them to remind us of, of God's goodness and nearness and who he, who he really is. But sometimes I think we, we're like Peter. We just cling to the moment so desperately. We don't want it to end. And I think the reason for that is we feel a need to avoid suffering at all costs. We want to follow Jesus up the mountain, but we just don't want to follow him on the way down. And I think that's because our, our world, our culture just places such a high value on comfort and pleasure. I mean, we go to such great lengths to organize our lives, to avoid pain, to avoid discomfort, to especially avoid death. It's always happening out there. We keep it as much at a distance as possible. But the reality is, if we follow Jesus, we follow a God who suffers. We follow a God with wounds. Now, the beauty is that he's a God whose wounds heal wounds. He's a wounded healer. So there's beauty there. And let me be extremely clear. I am not saying that God causes suffering. I don't believe God does cause suffering. I think that's caused by the fallen world, by sin, by the evil that is around us. Um, Even death, which is absolutely not caused by God, though, can be redeemed through resurrection power. Even suffering and pain can be redeemed in the kingdom of God. They can lead to new life, not because God caused them, but because God can redeem them. And again, this is a paradox. It's a mystery, if you will. I can't explain this, but I think there's a few verses um, in Scripture that help illustrate this. So I'm just going to rapid fire four quick scriptures that I think help us see what does it mean that suffering can actually lead to life. Here's uh, Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. 1 Peter 4.13, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Philippians 3, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And the words of Jesus, the master teacher himself, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Simply put, 
If we want to follow Jesus into a new resurrection life, then we have to follow Jesus through suffering and death. In the kingdom of God, death, this is a good news right here, death is always paired with resurrection. Suffering is always paired with glory. We may not fully understand it, but these two things go hand in hand. And we don't have to look far to see the suffering that is happening in our own lives or in the world around us. I mean, just look at the last few years, COVID, racism, police brutality, the violence in our city, the crisis in Ukraine that we just prayed about this morning. The list can go on and on and on. I think the reality of our world, whether we like it or not, is just that suffering is not avoidable. We may try. We may try to ignore it. We may try to run from it. We may set up certain systems to avoid it, but eventually it will catch up to us. And this is a mystery. Again, I can't fully explain this, but the good news is that Jesus meets us in our suffering. We are united to a suffering savior, a wounded healer. So pain and difficulty can actually be a place where we come face to face with the presence of God. Now, ultimately, the point of our lives is not to seek out the suffering of the valley or the joy of the mountaintop. The point of our lives is to seek out the presence of God wherever it is. If we rejoice, let us rejoice with God. If we mourn, let us mourn with God. Let's follow Jesus wherever he leads to the joy of baptism and to the pain of fasting in the wilderness, to the life-giving miracles and powerful healings of the sick, to the difficult journey of carrying a cross, to the unending joy of resurrection, but first to the sorrow of crucifixion. We are invited to find Jesus, to be with him through it all. But how? How do we actually do this? Uh, I think there's many ways for us to engage this, um, but one way that we're going to kind of press into specifically is through a gift that was handed down to us from the historic church. The historic church has known what it means to not avoid suffering, but also not to avoid joy. They've, they've known how to live our whole lives with Christ wherever he leads, and they've passed down a tool to us that's called the church calendar. Now, if you're not familiar with the church calendar, I'm just going to give sort of a quick summary overview, uh, 30,000 foot level overview of the church calendar. Um, it's a yearly calendar that uh, has multiple seasons that follow, they help us follow the life of Christ from his birth throughout his life to his death resurrection, ascension, and, and beyond. A simple way to think about it is just to divide the year in half. Now, it's not January 1st to December 31st like our year. Um, it changes every year which dates. But generally speaking, it starts with Advent in early December. And this first half of the year, so like December about through May, is all about just chronologically trying to sort of remember and relive um, the life of Jesus. So from Advent in December, we remember the birth of Jesus. Um, to Lent, we remember the suffering and death of Jesus. To Easter, we remember the, the glorious resurrection of Easter. Um, and, and then we get into the second half of the year in May, uh, which sort of, depending on who you ask, let's just say it begins late May with, with Pentecost. And this is where we begin to remember the life of God's people. 
So we remember the life of Jesus for the first half. Then we remember and we actually participate as God's people, the church, in remembering uh, the story of the church, God's people. Now, historically, many churches observe today, this Sunday, as a day called Transfiguration Sunday, us included. We, we chose this text specifically um, to celebrate this, this moment. Um, and this is the final Sunday before Lent. And I think it's so smart to do Transfiguration Sunday right before Lent begins because it, it really sets us up to see that we have this, this God who is this, this mountaintop God who is glorious and divine, and yet he's, he's going to journey toward death and resurrection. So Lent um, actually begins this Sunday, and then it'll be a 40-day season, six weeks, not including Sundays, where we remember Jesus' fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. We remember Jesus' suffering in his last days leading up to his crucifixion. But Lent, Lent is not all about suffering. It's really, like I've been saying, a season that helps us to prepare for resurrection. It's a time for us to sort of till the soil of our hearts, to, to open ourselves for seeds of resurrection to begin growing in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word Lent actually translates into the word spring, springtime, right? We're starting to see glimmers of spring in Chicago, I mean, barely. But um, the deadness of winter is, is, is starting to open up to flowers and, and green and, and beauty that will be springing up around us. And Lent is, is meant to do the same thing. Uh, one of my favorite theologians, his name's Alexander Schmiemann, and he calls Lent a bright sadness, a bright sadness. I love this metaphor because it shows us the paradox of Lent. It's a season for mourning, but it's a season for joyful mourning. It's a season for pain, but a season for healing that comes through pain. It's a season where we experience life through death. And I think we, we only really know something in this world when we know its shadow side. Think about it. How much more satisfying is a meal when you, when you know that you're, you're hungry? How much more joyful do you feel after you're lifted out of a time of sadness? How much more real is healing after you've felt pain, intimacy after distance? The reality is, is every experience of our world is stained with the shadow side. And through Lent, I think we learn to embrace this reality and to, to live it out, even while we're longing for the fullness of what it means to, to be with Christ in the life that is to come. Now, I want to get real sort of tangible and specific here about, about Lent. Um, so often, I don't know what your experience has been with Lent. I don't know if it's brand new to you or if it's something that was sort of legalistically enforced in your, in your past or in your childhood. Maybe it was just something you thought like, like Roman Catholics did. I just, I'm not sure what your experience is with it. But often, at least this is my experience growing up, Lent was sort of seen as a time to give up surface-level things, sort of, you know, chocolate, coffee, or just give up eating meat on Fridays. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think we can learn a lot when we give up our surface-level sort of fleshy desires. Um, but for this year, at least, what if we asked ourselves, where do we desire to, to see resurrection begin to grow 
in our lives? Where are we sensing dryness, dry ground, if you will? And how might we create space for flowers to bloom even in us? What if Lent became less about giving up surface level desires and more about actually really receiving the deepest desires, the soul level desires that we all have? So this Lent, that's, we're gonna be pressing into that as a community. We're gonna be pressing into really one question in particular. How do I desire for resurrection to, to grow in me? Where do I desire new life? And what are some practices from the way of Jesus that I can do to join God in this work of renewal and resurrection that he wants to do in me? Um, I love, again, Dallas Willard. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. So we're not earning resurrection or anything. We're, we're, we're doing our part by joining God in this resurrection work in our life. It might look like embracing a practice of fasting from something in order to see what God might do there. It might look like beginning to practice something like radical generosity or gratitude and see what God might do there. So to help guide us, uh, you may have noticed a little booklet out, uh, out front. We have some in the back, too. Um, we're going to be engaging this, this thing called a Lent experiment. It's an experiment because we're, we're genuinely asking, like, God, if I engage in fasting, like, I want to see the, the new life that can come from embracing that pain and embracing that suffering. And so um, it's a workbook for us to go through. There's, there's five steps. There's a few questions for each step just to prompt some reflection. And then one of the steps is actually to design your Lent journey to design what practices are you going to engage? What, what might you fast from? How might you engage prayer or generosity in um, a new or different way? So the questions and prompts are just going to help give shape to that. So you're more than welcome today to take one of these guides. Like I said, there's some in the back and there's some out front. But we're also, I want to let you know, Jade mentioned um, at the beginning, this Wednesday night, we're going to be hosting an Ash Wednesday gathering, partnering with our, Logan Squ our Lincoln Square congregation, where we will worship and pray, hear a little bit about Ash Wednesday, um, receive the ashes. And then the second half, we're going to just do a deep dive into this. It's going to be more of a workshop than like a sermon. I'm going to be up here just kind of leading us through the questions, and we're going to try to design uh, a Lent experience uh, together. So we'd love to see you there. It's also on our website, so you can, you can catch it there. Um, but one of the things you'll notice if you look in, in this booklet or you check out our website is uh, the fifth step, once you've designed your experience, uh, experiment, the fifth step is to commit to your plan and if you want to, to process with others, to process in community. So I'm really excited. We're going to be um, hosting groups to check in uh, with your Lent experiment if you want to. You can sign up for those with the QR code. You can email me. My email address is in here. And these are going to be groups of like five to seven people just doing a five-minute check-in about their Lent experiment. How's it going? You know, are you notice anything? Where's it been difficult? Where's it been life-giving? Um, and just encourage one another on the journey. So those will be two options. Either on Sunday, directly after church, we'll kind of disperse into groups of five and um, just answer, reflect together, share our, our journey. Um, or Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. on Zoom. And again, we'll probably just do breakout groups of five and just talk through um, how our Lent experiment is going. I think processing with people in community is just so valuable, so helpful to, to help us on the journey. So again, QR code or email me. Uh, we'd love to invite you into that. Um, so let's close 
I think like a good movie, um, Jesus has told us how this is all going to end, right? He will face suffering and death, but ultimately resurrection. And he's inviting us to follow him through all the twists and turns as we journey uh, together, taking up our crosses, knowing that the road of suffering is the road of resurrection. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for these, these beautiful mysteries, and we pray that even if we don't understand them, you would help us experience them. You would help us embrace that, um, that suffering and pain do not have the final word, but your resurrection power does have the final word. And in that, we rejoice. We thank you um, for leading us and for guiding us and help us, Lord. We know we can't muster this up on our own strength. Absolutely not. We need the power of your Holy Spirit to shape us, to guide us, to empower us as we just try to walk alongside you wherever you're leading. We pray through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.